All right, so this morning we are beginning a new series while we're in this space, Old North Church, and our new series is going to be entitled A New Name. And we've entitled it a new, uh, back in June about how we're moving towards changing the name of our church. Now, this isn't a new conversation. It's a conversation that the church has been having over the last couple of years. I know uh, people in leadership have discussed perhaps changing the name of the church to Sierra Madre Community Church. And of course, it's not the first time this church has changed its name. We began our life back in uh, 1880 or 92 as the first congregational church of Sierra Madre. After a bit, they dropped the name first, and then it just was the Congregational Church of Sierra Madre, and then at some other point in the history, they switched it up, and they became Sierra Madre Congregational Church. And one of our concerns has been that that word congregational is just not real accessible. Now, back in the 17th century, when the name and the you know, congregational churches were really growing and flourishing, it was obvious what it meant to everybody on the street. It meant you were not an Episcopalian or a Presbyterian. Instead, you were a Congregationalist. But the, the name Congregational just doesn't carry the same freight in our own day and age. And so we've been concerned that that would be kind of like the thing that our community sees and interacts with, and they might be a little bit confused by that. And so what we're proposing is changing the name to Christ Congregational Church of Sierra Madre in the bylaws. That's going to be the name change in the bylaws. So if you want to like compare it with the history, we're changing out first for Christ. And if you don't like that, that's on you, not me. <laughs> but then on our signage and on our you know, website and all this stuff, we're just going to be known as Christ Church. And so that's kind of what we're moving towards. Now, the, the reason why we're thinking about the name Christ Church is because I think it's good to have a name that preaches. And if we want to be anything as a community, it is a church that is centered on and founded on and is grounded in Christ. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in our sanctuary just kind of walking through each one of our stained glass windows. And it struck me for the first time just how Christocentric our building itself is. So just consider this. In the very middle of our space, right at the focal point of our sanctuary is angels announcing the birth of Christ. And so right there, our focal point is on the incarnation of Christ. And then if you turn and you look at the north walls, what do you see? Well, you see the four windows with the four parables of Jesus. The first, or four of the parables of Jesus, the first is the parable of the sower. And of course, Christ in that parable himself is the sower who's sowing the word of the kingdom. Uh, next, you have the parable of the, of the prodigal son. And in this parable of Jesus, Jesus is the true older brother who goes into the far country not only to rescue younger brothers from the pigsty, but also older brothers who have always kept their nose, nose clean but are angry at their father. And then you have the parable of the good Samaritan who gets off not just a horse to get down at great risk to his life to bring somebody healing, but he actually leaves the glory of heaven to enter into our brokenness and pain to carry us into a place where we can know healing in the Father's house. And then the other window is the Christ, the good shepherd. 
If you go around into the north transepts, what you find are the four, four of the I am sayings of Jesus. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. All I am statements of Jesus that point to his own character and identity. Shall we go on? If you look up, you will find uh, stained glass pieces on the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each with an image in the middle that symbolizes a different aspect of the character of Christ. And then that piece that sits facing out into our community is Christ welcoming children, those on the margins, into his arms to learn and grow. If you look on the south transepts, you have Christ's great commandment, love God and love your neighbor. And then you have Christ's great commission, go into all the world. And then you have Christ's gift, the power of the Holy Spirit, to fill us, to move out, to bear witness to Jesus in this world. And I sat back after looking at all these stained glass windows and I said, why didn't they name this place Christ Church a long time ago? So this morning, we want to begin a series where we talk not so much about changing a name. That's really a minor thing. What I want to to talk to you about what it means to be centered and grounded and founded in Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk about Christ, our Lord. And we're going to look at that great Christological passage of Colossians 1. And then we're going to, the next week, look at Christ, our example, and look at Philippians 2. And then we're going to look at Christ, our Redeemer, and look at Romans 3. And then we're going to look together at Christ, the final word, and look at Colossians or at uh, Hebrews 1 and John 1. And our final week, we're going to look together at Christ, our peace. And we're going to look at Ephesians 2, where Christ breaks down the barrier that divides us and he creates a new community, a new humanity in himself. And these are the great Christological passages in the New Testament, and I am pleased to tell you that that's what we're going to be spending time in over the next five weeks. So that's awesome, isn't it? And so this morning, we're going to begin by talking about Christ, our end, Christ, our destination, Christ as the telos of the human life. He is the place where we're finally going is to have our lives conformed and shaped into his very image. And to talk to you about this issue, I want to look together at Galatians chapter 4. Just a simple little phrase in Galatians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me there, Galatians 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. The book of Galatians is largely a polemic letter. It's full of argumentations in the Old Testament a lot. But in the section that we're going to be looking at, Paul actually stops the polemic and he opens up his heart, and he discloses what for us is at his very heart, what his passion is for this church. And look at what he says, verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. And then he says this, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Paul says, my labor, my work, everything I'm going for is so that you as a community might be formed and shaped after the likeness of Jesus Christ. And to make this point, he draws upon the analogy of childbirth. You know, several years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and one of the speakers got up and he made the claim, he said that 
The labor and delivery of a sermon is the closest thing a man will ever come to giving birth. And I, and I heard that, and I was like, yes, you know, and I, I went home, and I shared it with my wife, who has given birth four times unmedicated. And I said, honey, you would never believe what they, they said, that, you know, that, that preaching is just like giving birth. It's the closest thing a man will come to giving birth. And she just looked at me, and she said, men have no right to compare anything they do to giving birth. But then a, a few months ago, I was preaching through the book of Galatians. I came across this text. And I brought it to my wife and said, look, honey, Paul compared his ministry to labor and delivery. And she looked at me and she said, he was single, wasn't he? <laughs> it's an unusual metaphor. But what I find so arresting, what grabs my imagination about this metaphor, it's not so much that Paul uses it to describe his own work. I mean, women, you know that men are always exaggerating the extent of their own work in order to garner your sympathy and compassion for them and why they should relax or whatever. But what I find arresting, what I find interesting is not so much how Paul describes his labor, but what I find interesting is the end to which he's laboring. It is so that, he says, that Christ might be formed in you. In other words, he's saying that the goal, the telos of not just the Christian life and not just the church, but the goal of human existence is ultimately to be conformed into the image of Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men and women into Christ and to make them little Christ. If they're not doing that, then all of the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermon, and even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. So this is the end. This is the goal of human existence, that human beings actually might be conformed to the image. In what sense is this your end and your goal? Is, in what sense is this the telos of human existence? Well, I want to suggest at least three things. To be conformed to the image of Christ, number one, means to be conformed to his resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul puts it like this. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. You know, on Friday, the powers of darkness did their worst to the Son of God. And he breathed his last, and they took his corpse, and they put it in a cold tomb. And all day Saturday, that corpse was laying in the tomb. But early on Sunday morning, the life of God burst forth from this tomb, and Christ came out in a resurrected, renewed, transformed physical body to never die again. And what the New Testament teaches is that this bodily resurrection was the first of what is to come. It is like the first fruits in a harvest. If you've ever had, you know, a tomato plant or whatever, and you see the first tomato, it becomes red, and you're like, oh, the rest are coming. And so too, when you look at the resurrected, renewed physical body of Jesus, you get a glimpse into what Christ. 
And this means so much. This means that our future is not disembodied bliss floating on a cloud, playing a harp, which always sounded really boring to me. You know, I remember asking people when I was little, you know, what's heaven like? And, and is it, are we just sitting on clouds? They're, no, they're like, it's an eternal church service. And I was a kid, I, I didn't like church services. But we're gonna, we're gonna dance, and we're gonna run, and we're gonna hold each other, and we're gonna delight our senses, our taste buds, our ears, our eyes, physically renewed in the kingdom of God, fully glorified, this is what you are in store for. If you have been crucified with Christ, you will be raised with a resurrected body like Jesus. And if you are in here this this morning and your body has some aches and pains, and you remember back in the day when an ache and pain over time, you could rehabilitate yourself, but those days are over. And now it just gets a little bit worse each and every day. You will walk in the kingdom of God. You will run, you will jump, you will play, you will hold each other, and your bodies will never feel pain again. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more crying. Behold, God says, I make all things resurrection new. Amen. And so to be conformed... To, the res- to, to Jesus means to be conformed to the resurrection of Jesus. But to be conformed into the image of Christ is better than that. It's not just being conformed to the resurrected body of Jesus. To be conformed to Christ is to be conformed to his character. In Romans 8 verse 29, Paul put it like this. He said, for those whom he foreknew, in other words, before time began, God set his loving knowledge on us, and then he predestined us, what for? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many. You think about how the father delights in the son of God. That's just One of, not just one, but he is the eternal son, but he wants to create a whole family that look like his son, Jesus. And he uses this language of being conformed to the image of the son. And that language takes us back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, our original vocation and calling was to be an image bearer of God. True humanity reflects back to God his own love, his own character, But of course, we as image bearers, since the fall into sin, have been marred, and the image has been broken. And now, instead of reflecting back to God his own love and kindness, we reflect out into the world and to God brokenness and sin. But Christ came into the world not just as the eternal son, but as true humanity, as the true and better Adam, as the true image bearer of God. And his purpose in coming into the world, into the brokenness of humanity, is so that he might carry us with him to be formed and shaped and to have the image of God restored in us so that we begin in our life to look more and more like Jesus, to look loving like Jesus and joyful like Jesus and peaceful like Jesus and patient like Jesus and kind like Jesus and faithful and gentle and full of self-control like Jesus. Don't you wish you were married to somebody like that? 
Don't you wish they were your children in your home, your parents? You? This is what you are in for. When we see him, John says in 1 John, as he is, we are going to be shaped into the image of Jesus. And that means this. If your destination is formation into the character and the likeness of Christ, then the Christian life is a journey of becoming. It's not that you enter in and you say the prayer, you sign the card and everything's done. The moment you're converted, you're baptized, you enter into the Christian community, you begin a journey of an ongoing life of transformation from glory to greater glory, transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And that means change must go deep. You know, it was Dallas Willard who once said that uh, he, he, he liked, he thought the WWJD campaign, you remember those What Would Jesus Do bracelets? He said, I, I like it as far as it goes. He said, but the problem with the bracelet, what would Jesus, or the question, what would Jesus do, is that Jesus would never ask, what would Jesus do? He would just do it. And he would do it out of a character that reflected the image of God. And this is God's vision for your own life, to see the cultivation of character and virtue so that doing good and being kind and doing works of justice and mercy and being peaceable just comes naturally. We bump into you and what comes out is not angry or if you get cut off on the freeway and what comes out is a, your middle finger or whatever. I saw what you did last week, but, but what comes out naturally is love, joy, peace, patience. And so the Christian life is a journey of becoming, and that means you've not yet arrived. And so be patient with yourself, be patient with your neighbors and your friends and the people in this body. But do not be content. Always seek to be cultivating this life. You know, there's this great literary device that's used in almost all of our great stories, almost all of our great movies, and it's the the, the literary device of the hero's journey. And the hero's journey usually begins with the call to adventure. Luke Skywalker is confronted by Obi-Wan and he invites him, you know, you know to uh, come. And Luke says, no, I've got to go back on the farm. You know, his, his uh, uncle Owen was a moisture farmer. But then he responds to the call to adventure. And Bilbo is invaded by a bunch of dwarfs into his nice little hobbit hole and he's called into adventure and so on and so forth. And the adventure after the call, it goes through typically ordeals that oftentimes lead to uh, the hero rejecting or resisting the call and saying, I can't do this. But then there's a mentor that comes in and helps them along the way. And then finally they come out of it and there's new life. And the thing that the, the, the hero's journey reveals to us is that most of our great stories Yes, they're typically about, you know, what, what uh, Bilbo does in the end, you know, to help k- get the dragon smog killed, or what Luke Skywalker or Rey or whoever it is in your hero stories, what they do, but it's more than about what is done through them. The journey is about what's done in them, and this is the Christian life. God, in many ways, is more concerned about what he is doing in you than what he does through you. So what kind of person are you becoming? Or put it like this, if you were to go on living forever and ever and ever, 
What kind of person do your current practices and habits form you into? All of us are in a journey of becoming. And this journey of becoming often involves pain. Just like there is no child that comes into the world without the pain of their mother, there is no change, there is no growth of character and transformation apart from our pain. And how many of us in this room, I mean, it's a truism to say that the greatest lesson we learn in life is not in those times when life is going great, it's usually in times of suffering and difficulty, amen? So don't waste your pain. Receive it. Allow God to use it in your life to shape and fashion you. He is out to change and conform you into the image of Christ. C.S. Lewis put it like this, and we'll move to our final point. He said, the command to be perfect is not idealistic gas. I love it. Nor is it the command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. If we let him, he will take the feeblest and the filthiest of us and make us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God his own boundless delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we're in for, nothing less He meant what he said. So this is your end, to be conformed to the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, to be conformed to the character of Jesus. But thirdly and finally, I want you to see that it involves sharing in his character, but conformity to Christ means sharing in his glory. Look at this passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. I want you to see this. This is one of the most stunning verses in the Bible to me. But look at this. He says, and now if we are children, then we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. In other words, all of the inheritance that belongs to Jesus, you now share in if you have come to receive this great grace and gift in your life. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his what? Glory, I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, do you see this? He's talking about a glory that we will share in, a glory that will not just be revealed to us, but a glory that will be revealed in us. What does that mean? Well, on one level, I think we can get the idea of glory that's revealed to us. What is glory? Well, in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the word for for glory is kavod. And it's translated the weight, the heaviness of God. It is that infinite love, that infinite delight, that infinite bliss, infinite being, infinite joy of God. It is his holy otherness. It is what makes him transcendent, other, and beautiful, infinitely, eternally beautiful. And one day, you will behold the beauty of God. You will stand before that infinite sea of love and joy and delight and bliss and well-being, and you will see God. The ancients 
use the phrase, the beatific vision, to describe this day. And the New Testament affirms what the ancients believed. You will behold the glory and the beauty of God. But our redemption takes us even further and deeper than that because we will not, according to Scripture, simply behold the glory of God. We ourselves will share in, we will enter into this glory. You know, have you ever had an experience that was so powerful that you were watching and you thought, man, if only I could just get in that a little deeper? So last year, I went to a U2 concert. And the concert opened with U2 singing Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And it began with uh, Larry Mullins, the drummer. He just walked out on stage by himself. There was no, like, extra kind of bills and whistles and the stuff. It's just Larry Mullins goes out and he starts playing. You know this, and then uh, the Edge walks out with his guitar, and he's going, you know, and then Bono walks down, just explodes. And Mumford and Sons, who's another amazing band, had opened for you too. And I love Mumford and Sons; they're one of the greatest bands that have emerged in the last, you know, decade. But you two, quite frankly, made him look like little children. It was so powerful, and I, in that moment, like, I was like, I want to be on stage with Bono, you know? I wanted to enter into this glory that I was beholding. A couple years ago, uh, our family on sabbatical had uh, rented a house that was on the beach. Now, I love to behold the beauty of the ocean when it's glassy and the waves are breaking. But what is even better than beholding the beauty of the waves is to enter into it. And the very pinnacle for a surfer is to actually take off on a wave and go down to the bottom and to pull into like a big, sick, you know, barrel. And you can hear the thing, you know, and you're just like, you're, some of you guys, you're like, you poor people, you've only watched waves. <laughs> but to enter into it, it's like, this is what we were made for. C.S. Lewis put it like this. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, and to ourselves to bathe in it and to become part of it. This is the end of human existence. This, this is wonder, it is mystery, it is beauty, and it is what you were made for, to enter into the glory and the beauty of God, to, to enter into the divine dance of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this eternal love that has been going on from all ages, to be welcomed into the divine dance, to be accepted into the family, and to share in this glory. But here's the breathtaking part. Is what it cost to get us there. 
want to invite our, our band to come up right now. And, um, you know, there, there's this, uh, you, you all know the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, crucified under Pilate. I'm sorry, I'm skipping it. But the point I'm getting to is he descended into hell. There's this phrase in the Apostles' Creed. It's been there since like the second or third century. And theologians have wrestled with this phrase. What does it mean to say that Christ descended into hell? One great theologian in the 20th century said, whatever it means, it is the inner explanation of what happened outwardly in the death and burial of Jesus. Outwardly, he died and was buried. But beneath the surface, he descends into hell. Hell, I think, if you want to know kind of like what the Bible teaches about hell, one way to describe it is hell is actually the inverse of glory. If glory is that infinite love, infinite joy, infinite delight, infinite being, and disillusion and rejection. And here is the absolute wonder of all wonders. Like some of you have accepted Christianity. Like, do you know what you've accepted? Some of you have rejected Christianity. Do you know what you've rejected? The eternal Son who forever dwelt in glory, infinite love, infinite joy, descended into infinite death, infinite suffering, infinite rejection, and ultimate God-forsakenness so that you never have to. He gathers up in himself all God-forsakenness, all judgment on the cross, and he brings it to a final and a complete end. And then he invites us to hop on his back, and he carries us into glory, into infinite love, infinite joy, infinite bliss. This is our hope. This is the gospel. And we're closing our service, sharing together in the bread and the cup. Our servers are going to distribute the bread.